You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Uh, I did not agree to that. <laughs> that is not allowed. This song is called Campfire. Hee-haw! Yep, that's, that's, what, that's what it's about. This episode is the Campfire episode. <laughs> no, no. Please bring back our other music. Um, I think this is good, right? No. Just for one episode. Um, okay, let me see if we can salvage this. All right. Is that a better, more appropriate intro yeah, song? Yeah, I can, I can be okay with that one. <laughs> I think we should just do a different song every week. <laughs> Open with something new, surprising. You'll never know what to expect. Vernacular, the brand that keeps on changing. That's right. Um, speaking of keeping on changing, uh, we have a roundtable today. I guess those are not connected at all. <laughs> it's not really, not really well, a good segue. First of all, welcome to Vernacular Podcast. I'm oh, Sally. Right. We're all out of sync. <laughs> I'm Zach. And normally I say that part, right? But I and forgot. Today we are having a roundtable discussion with two of our other contributors. Yes, and we are talking about four different topics. And we were originally thinking that we were going to split this up into two episodes, but we decided no. Yeah, we're so going to talk about everything. The reason we were going to split it up is because we're going to go on vacation, literally, and uh, we're going to California. And because we're going to be in California and not having access to our podcast equipment we're not gonna be able to put out an episode next week we knew that you're gonna miss us so right so we're gonna try to spread the love over two weeks but instead we're going to air the whole roundtable today you can listen to it all and then next week we're going to play an episode from the archives yeah that actually relates to california because we talk with a former googler yeah our friend steffi so that'll be released again next week if you haven't heard that already and until then, we're going to do today's roundtable. All right. Welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. We are here doing a roundtable, and Sally and I are joined by contributors Muriel Renault and Will Bryan. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks, Thanks for having, for having us. us. And I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that we originally planned this roundtable and actually <laughs> conducted this roundtable with two <laughs> other contributors. We had Ishan Nath and Elena Forsyth with us, and we had a great conversation. We talked for an hour or so. Uh, we signed off, thanked everyone for joining us, and then I looked at Sally and realized that I had never <gasps> hit the record button. I was so sad. So our so wonderful conversation sad. lost to posterity. <laughs> So here we are again, round two, and unfortunately, Ishan and Elena had scheduling conflicts, so they could not join us for round two, but their contributions will be sorely missed. But we have Muriel and Will at least coming back, and uh, we're going to talk about some of the same topics that we talked about and some different ones. So what should we talk about first, Sally? So we should start off on a high note with Taylor Swift. Is that actually a high note? <laughs> on a uh, on an exciting note, on a positive note, <laughs> maybe I, not no. even positive. <laughs> on a uh, deeply disturbing, no, not really, uh, befuddling, perhaps. I don't know. Uh, yeah, Will and Muriel, what what are some better adjectives to describe Taylor Swift? You could call it high impact. Ooh, oh, nice. High impact. Yep. So a high impact, it's impact note. Impactful. It's impactful. I hate that word. Yeah, it's it is an awkward word. It always just sort of rolls off the tongue very strangely, and it's a weird one too because it doesn't really mean anything. Right, it's a fake word. Right, 
Yeah. Okay, so we should have a roundtable about fake words. We totally should. Next topic for next roundtable, fake words and pet peeves. Okay. Love it. I'm in. Okay, so the big thing about Taylor Swift or the, the, the point that I want to make is that how do we feel about her approach to song making, right? Or what appears to be her new approach to song making, which is to target specific people and write songs about people that she has grievances against about. I'm not actually sure. Um, it's a long list, by the way. Yeah. The people that Taylor Swift has grievances against. And specifically, the Look at What You Made Me Do song coming out against Kanye West on the anniversary of his mother's, grandmother's mother's. death. How, I mean, what kind of, is this an independent spirit? Is this feminist? Is this despicable? Uh, what do you guys think? I don't know that any of those words comes to mind for me. Okay, uh, yeah. I think the, the word that first comes to mind is maybe interesting, which is maybe the word that's supposed to come to mind. Maybe that's what she's going for. I don't know. I'm not going to pretend to read her motive or anything. Um, I, I have to admit, I'm not a connoisseur of t-swift or really any m- much pop music at all um, well you're not and, a swifty really i'm not you're not a closet I'm really not. swifty i'm surprised so uh, this this is my theory about will though will you can tell me if this is true or you can just deny i, I want to hear it i'm gonna i'm probably not gonna believe you if you do deny it anyway so that's okay. it. so i don't think that you're like a big taylor swift fan but i bet that there's like three of her songs that you actually know pretty well and i can see them being like your commute jams <laughs> not like not like every day, but maybe like maybe a few times a month you throw on some of the the T Swizzle classics or or lifting as Nathan Sipe told us last right. week. Yeah. Actually, he listens to Taylor Swift when he's lifting. Yeah, I don't know. If, I don't know if I see Will listening to because I'm I'm seeing Will as like a fan of sort of the teardrops on my guitar type <laughs> genre of Taylor Swift. I am Swift. a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I would admit that if it were true, I actually uh, <laughs> found myself yesterday singing frozen in the shower um (laughs) the reason i know uh, that song as because you have a young daughter yeah i I have a four-year-old girl who loves frozen (laughs) and a two-year-old boy who loves frozen there you go um the same kids love what's the there's a taylor swift song that i do know it's um shake it off shake it off that's the one shake it off so i do know that one i don't normally sing it on my way to work but you know it's catchy it's nice i have nothing against it I have nothing against Taylor Swift in general, but how I judge a song kind of depends on what sort of song it is. And for me, pop music has a pretty low bar to jump over. So, you know, I don't find it terribly offensive. It's kind of interesting. It's fun to listen to. As far as I'm concerned, that makes it a decent pop song. So if I can summarize your argument for you, you're basically saying that pop music is nothing more than entertaining garbage and because Taylor Swift's music does not rise above that it's neither bad nor good it just sort of is I think the word garbage is a little harsher than I would go but basically yes <laughs> okay all right fair enough so well yeah Muriel why don't you respond okay well first of all I have to declare whatever else I think about Taylor Swift that I owe her one because when my now almost three-year-old son was a newborn and would only nap, he was touching me. Um, I used to put him in a baby carrier and bounce on a yoga ball and blast blank space and he would sleep only when I played blank space and then I could do my schoolwork. So, um, amazing. That's amazing. Does he still like that song? To this day, he enjoys that song. Isn't oh, that interesting? Cute. Yeah, that is yeah. funny. Um, it's really not appropriate for tiny children. Right, <laughs> if you, yes. If you know what it's true. about. But at least 
it's not, I mean, it's not like profanity laced. So in that respect, I think it's okay. But, um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've enjoyed lots of her music and I really did not enjoy this song, um, that I don't feel qualified to say whether or not it's good. I just don't, it's not a style of music that I enjoy listening to. And I do think it's, um, whatever the technical musical term is, it, it sounds different to me from 1989 or at least from most of 1989 in a pretty significant way. Um, I mean, it has like thematically echoes of bad blood and yes, um, agreed. Um, there, what's the song? There was another song on 1989 that I usually used to skip because it just wasn't my style. And it's the just, one just to, uh, just to catch me up. Is that an album that you're referring to? Or yes. Is that, okay. It was her, the, I think her most recent album before this one that's coming out is that right yes I, that's my understanding at least i'm not really up on my taylor swift discography but i i think that is correct um i'm gonna look at this i'm double checking it's right gonna now bother as me. well so 1989 was released in october of 2014 it is her fifth studio album and let's see yes that's correct so uh, Red, 1989, and then Reputation. That's the chronology of Taylor Swift discography. Another weird word. I was just going to say, it just, I don't know, it sounds significantly different. And she's also, I mean, that's happened before with her, you know, with her, especially I think from um, the shift in some of the earlier albums, like uh, when she moved away from country and more toward pop, people also remarked that the sound really changed. Um, but I, I don't think it lost her any fans, but I don't know whether this might be a little bit different because I at least am not interested in listening to this album based on the sample of it that I get in this song. Yeah, no, I think you're right because I didn't pick up on this at first, but I've spent an inordinate, inordinate amount of time, um, thinking about Taylor Swift because of the, our, our roundtable discussion. And I read both a Verily article and listened to this po- podcast episode from Popcast, and they pointed out that she says, um, she says she. There's that point in in um, Look What You Made Me Do where she says hello, and then she says that Taylor Swift is dead, or the old Taylor is dead, and so some people interpret her as saying both through that song when she says that ta- old, the old Taylor is dead, and then also the way that she promoted the release of of um look what you made me do by deleting everything on her social media and then introducing the song that she's trying to make some sort of statement that she is changing everything and maybe it's just a gimmick maybe she doesn't really mean it maybe it's just a you know to get new listeners or to as will said to make it interesting to 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 get new interest but it just seems to me like she's kind of schizophrenic almost or that she's had these like two personalities where she on the one hand, wins this big court case and kind of in the name of like feminism and women's independence. And, but then on the other hand, she has these like petty songs, lyrics that she comes out with. So I just don't know which Taylor she's trying to be. I didn't know any of that. Now it's even more interesting. Right? Yeah. I know. I didn't know any of this either until I you know, did my research. So it does. That's actually a pretty cool way to introduce a song. I got to say. Yeah, it's true. It's true. All right. So I guess credit where credit's due. Maybe she's, she's just a a brilliant marketer. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, Sally, the, the point that you made about her 
recent court victory. Did you, do you want to explain that or? Oh, no, um, you go ahead. Yeah. I, no, I mean, just I that turned she, over to the constitutional she, lawyer. <laughs> uh, oh, well, I mean, this isn't exactly my area of specialty, but um, I think she had a sexual harassment case uh, and that she that she won. Is that right? I didn't yes. actually yeah. know Correct. what the outcome was, but um, basically this Yeah, she won like, $1 because she didn't want yes, any money. So it's actually technically sexual harass, sexual assault because there is there's oh, physical right. touching involved. Physical contact. Yes, yeah, so right. there was uh, someone, so, someone groped her at a concert. And she was um, really insistent in her testimony. I just thought this was really powerful um that she was not going to be made to take responsibility for any part of this man's actions that he should be forced to take responsibility for them and then look what you made me do like literally right there in the title is this idea of abdication of responsibility and that like somehow people by crossing her in some way are forcing her to behave in a particular manner and even potentially forcing her into this drastic change of identity or at least you know shift in personality and that seems those two ideas don't seem to be um they don't comport well with one another but the one thing that i thought of that i wanted to remember to say and then i don't really have anything else to contribute on this topic is that blank space itself is satirical and i think we have to be willing to acknowledge the possibility that this is at least partly satirical because um you know a ton of the a ton of the immediate response to blank space especially the video i don't know if you guys have seen that but it's like very um was you know people took it seriously and it wasn't intended to be taken seriously she was sort of making a mockery of people's perception of her so if that's what she intends to do with this new song then that gives it an entirely different meaning um i mean if that's the case the she did a bang up job of being convincing in the alternative because that video is really kind of remarkable. But um, I don't know. I think that's at least possible. And that would, I think, make it different. I think that's a good take. I think that uh, maybe in the same way that uh, perhaps uh, Donald Trump sort of decided to see how far he could take something and then it just sort of started to run away and like oh he's like oh look people are going with this like maybe maybe that's what's happened here with taylor swift like she starts being kind of edgy blank space bad blood and then she's like well let's just let's just see how far this will go like let me just make a uh borderline homicidal rant uh called look what you made me do and you know make a disturbing video to go along with that and we'll see you know we'll see what that what that takes us Next thing you know, President Swift. Oh my goodness! Uh, yeah, that. But the so the actually, this is a really good point, Will. So Kanye has talked about running for president, and we could oh, see we mm. could see a Kanye Taylor Swift primary. Can you imagine? No. Wow. wow. This is wow. plot twist. Wow. <laughs> Swift versus West. This is going to be good. I'm excited about this. Yeah. Here, here's my other hot take on this song, guys. Okay, so. So some people take this really personally. I think that this is like Taylor being really disturbing. That was my initial take when I first saw this video. I think I've refined my ideas here oh, since then. Do tell. So here's so we we already mentioned 1989, right? It's called 1989 because Taylor Swift was born in 1989, December 1989. So late in 1989, she was almost a 1990 baby. So she's pretty young. So 27 years old, she's worth almost 300 million dollars. She's one of the most beloved pop stars of our time. But she's only 27 years old, which to me suggests she's probably not super mature. And she has all this money, has all this audience, has all this clout. 
socially, politically, etc. And she just doesn't quite know how to do with it or what to do with it or how to use it, how to leverage it effectively or appropriately. And so this is maybe just a big way to get attention. Maybe it's her actually acting out on a grudge that she has against Kanye, but not doing so to an appropriate magnitude, not realizing that lots of young boys and girls are going to watch her video and be very confused by what she's talking about or think that she's condoning that kind of behavior. Maybe she's just an immature 27-year-old and we're giving her way too much credit trying to read any more into it. That's fair. Yeah. All right. Well, have we adequately dissected? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) I think everyone's just made much better points than I did. So thanks for taking this where I wasn't expecting. Okay. Well, let's talk about something not really related, but sort of related, and then it's about women. And there's the law involved, so Taylor Swift was in this sexual assault case. Right. Okay, so there's this federal judge who um, the New York Times called him, uh, I don't know, kind of like a a hero for for women's rights, but not just women's rights, but minorities' rights, because he made a rule that he wants junior lawyers to speak up more in court. And the rule itself just says – I guess junior lawyers. Yeah, like junior attorneys are encouraged to. But what he to speak. means by that, or he, what who he's really pointing his finger at, are minorities and women. Right. Because he found out that in his in his um, district, I guess he only women were in lead counsel roles only twenty five percent of the time. Right. So he wants to incentivize diversity, and and he's doing that by encouraging junior lawyers to speak up in court. Um, so, what do you guys think about this? I think it's great. I mean, why not? And there's, uh, I mean, I think a quota would be unconstitutional, right? If he's requiring, and that would uh, certainly infringe on um, uh, rights uh, to fair trials or to uh, choice of counsel of people involved in various cases if the judge was not allowing certain lawyers based on race or gender. But uh, absent a quota system, I think it's absolutely a good thing to encourage people whose voices are otherwise marginalized to have an active participatory role. I think it's good. I thought the New York Times um, did one thing poorly in their article. They didn't mention that he's not the only one doing this. I also read an Above the Law article on this. And um, in his own district, Judge Ann Donnelly is doing the same thing. So so that's, that's cool. I mean, it's better that he's not the only judge doing that. Yeah, it seems to me like this is exactly the kind of um, – like this is the right way to get younger lawyers the training that they need and to um, sort of in a gradual way fight back against. Um, the article that, that announced the ruler talked about the rule didn't mention this, but there's a lot of evidence that um, clients who are represented by um, women and by ethnic or racial minorities have um, poorer outcomes in jury cases. So there's like implicit bias at play just in the sort of the appearance of your lawyer. Um, and I think a lot of that is sort of a self-reinforcing vicious cycle, right? Where people right. think of old white men as like authoritative and intelligent. And so if you're represented by someone who's not a white man, um, the perception of that person's competence or trustworthiness in the eyes of a jury might be Reduced. compromised. And yeah. so, um, so by sort of normalizing and well, and the other side of that coin is that then 
of course, if you are representing a client as a firm and you have a legal team that has, you know, a woman of color and then a white man on it, you might be tempted to think that the best thing for the client's interests was to sort of put the best face forward or whatever, um, which is a distressing idea to me, but, um, you know, it's very real. So just putting in, in the rules, you know, Hey, we encourage young attorneys to get this type of real world work experience, which is also valuable for their training. You know, it's, I, I don't see a, I don't see a downside, especially since it's couched in neutral terms, which is exactly, you know, what you would hope. Um, so it seems good to me. I don't really know why anyone would object. Unless they're racist and sexist. Right. I think it's a great rule. I applaud the judge. I do not applaud the journalist who wrote this article. Um, Yeah. Sally talked about it a little bit. One sort of negative aspect, how it failed to look at other judges who are doing the same exact thing. But the New York Times article that we're using as a source here is called – I think it, it says has, a judge wants a bigger role for female lawyers, so he made a rule. There you go. Yeah. So it has a sort of buzzfeedy title to it, and there's a period between lawyers and so. So a judge wants a bigger role for female lawyers, period. So he made a rule, period. And it's just – it's almost like you're expecting you to open it and see a listicle of the things that this judge has done to encourage women and minorities. So And, well, what, and the, the title doesn't even mention minorities. It's not just about That's true too. too. Yeah. So I think there's a missed just opportunity here. Yeah. Yeah, they're sort of misrepresenting the info in the headline. They're missing an opportunity to talk about a wider trend of judges, plural, doing this in various courtrooms. Um, yeah, the, the article's not even that clear on exactly what the rule says. So we had to go to the source rule itself and figure out what exactly it was. So shame on the New York Times for botching this, but good on the judge for making his new rule. Moving on. <laughs> I think we covered that one fairly uh, uncontroversial, but... um, I thought it was good to point out anyways. Definitely. So I think next, let's talk about, um, Will, your question. You you pitched this to us a while back. Uh, Good question about sort of science and climate change and how the scientific community weighs in on issues that the wider populace can often see as pretty divisive. And controversial, even when that that may not actually be the case when you look at the data. So I'm going to hand it over to you here to sort of frame this question, then we'll talk about it. All right. Well, I guess the question just arises from watching the news and seeing how political this issue of climate change has become. And just wondering what goes through your heads, what, what should go through our heads when we hear claims from the news, from politicians, from scientists concerning things like, um, you know, climate change and what's causing it and where it's taking us. Uh, some of these claims on the face of it seem to be falsifiable or verifiable, and yet people seem to have all sorts of different opinions about them at the same time. And sometimes it's very confusing, and I'm wanting to know how you parse all of that. I have a thought. Okay. I was thinking about this since the first time we talked about this topic during the yes. other roundtable. That was my plan. I really just wanted us, us to all be able to sort of think more deeply about what we talked about the first time. It's been helpful for me. I was thinking about the, the research in social science that exists about um, what happens to people when you present them with facts about an opinion they have that is 
factually falsifiable. Are you guys familiar with this research? No, I, I don't think so. Seen something about this. Yeah. So if you talk to people who have an opinion that is in the uh, to the degree that science can demonstrate such a thing, scientifically false. Um, like the flat earthers, for instance, <laughs> and you present them with evidence to uh, to de- to show them that their their view is factually incorrect. The effect of this process on their opinion is that they then hold it more strongly than they did before. So, human beings, it turns out, just aren't that bright when it comes to our ability to assess our own our own, you know, canniness or our ability. We're not good at assessing how well we can assess the truth and falsity of things is basically what I'm saying. Gotcha. Um, and I was thinking about that particularly with respect to climate change, because I know people personally who, you know, decided in the, you know, late nineties, early two thousands on the word of Rush Limbaugh or Sean Hannity that climate change isn't real and that it's all, you know, this science is all hoax and they will not be convinced otherwise. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter to them that there's this overwhelming consensus in the scientific community. I don't know what they think the motivation of those people is, um, in perpetuating this idea, but, um, yeah, I mean, I would like to see, uh, overwhelming consensus among scientists that has been repeatedly tested over and over again for a long time, like, for instance, on the safety of vaccines, to be broadly accepted within our society and to have people act on that information. Um, But I do think you're always going to see that, that pushback, that there's almost this, there's, there's a human instinct where if you perceive yourself to be on the fringe of the culture majority in some way, um, then there's almost this desire to figure out a way that the these broadly accepted things are actually false. Um, and I see that a lot with anti-vaxxers, that it goes hand in hand with things like, um, you know, a certain type of religious belief or a certain type of political belief um and there's almost like a pride taken and like being the one in the know that everything everyone else believes is false it's a conspiracy yeah yes um and it's really it's really unfortunate because you know children die of vaccine preventable diseases and immunocompromised people die because herd immunity is reduced. I know we were supposed to be talking about climate change. Vaccines are like one of my soapboxes, but no, it's, it's related, right? You know, yeah, human beings are also... Sorry. In, so, in some ways, I think that's an even more interesting issue because, um, you know, when it comes to vaccinations, we have to face the question of when to force somebody into doing what we believe they should do because it's good for everyone. Right? I mean, with climate change, it's it's sort of um, it seems to be more the sort of situation where decisions are going to be made at a high level where most of us don't have direct input and aren't directly affected. Uh, but with vaccinations, it comes down to, um, you know, are, are we going to make people get vaccinated because it's what's good for everyone else? Or are we going to sequester them? Um, do, do you know what I'm saying? Am I making sense? No, totally. And I do think, I mean, that is a really interesting question because I have 
complicated than I think not fully formed uh, views on in what contexts and to what degrees um, people should be required to accept vaccinations because of my beliefs about things like freedom of conscience. But I think I, I think what my ideal, and I don't know how realistic this is, is just that we would come to a way of talking about issues um, and the, the the basis in evidence that they have such that people would be convinced on their own. And I actually think there's an element of the way um, people talk about things that aren't uh, actually as well-founded in science as things like the existence of, you know, man-caused climate change or the safety of vaccines. Like, for instance, um, nutrition science. And, Will, you brought this up last time. I think it's a perfect example, right? Uh Fat is bad for you. Fat is good for you. Butter is bad for you. Butter is good for you. Bread is terrible for you. Coconut oil is terrible Eggs. for you. You know, every time yeah. you turn around, right? Every time you turn around, there's something else that science is telling us is the new superfood or the new worst thing you can possibly eat. And it makes people, that kind of thing makes people doubt that there is any such thing as, a, you know, a defensible, falsifiable or verifiable scientific claim. So I think that we could do with a little bit more epistemic modesty in some areas, and that would cause... Absolutely. As a mathematician, I, uh, I'm a champion of epistemic modesty. Well, I think it's hard, too, with science, because most people don't understand science, and I'm you know one of those people. And so you get your understanding, or you begin to understand scientific claims through other avenues like the media. And so I'm sure, I mean, I didn't look into the studies that decided that coconut oil is now bad for you, but a lot of that is filtered through clickbaity, right. you know, buzzfeedy type articles. Right. Where the Huffington just, Post is like, you know, there's a new study that says coconut oil is bad for you. Here's what you need to know. Yeah. And, and then I go to that, I'm like, oh, oh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like broken down into, you know, a slideshow. And those are just the worst because- it, people are, eat that stuff up. You know, that's what you find on social media. And and they never go back and actually read the study and find out why this makes scientific sense or what the actual claim is. And just science has a lot against it because it is a specialty and it requires expert knowledge and expert experience and education. And so I just think it's, you know, I guess I feel bad for science. So if I understand... Well, on the Go no, ahead, go ahead, Will. Will. I, I was just on, on the other hand, Sally. I, I feel like a lot of the scientific claims that I would wholeheartedly ascribe to, I've learned in exactly that way. Um, I, I believe, for example, that all of the things in my living room right now are made of atoms. Uh, even though I've never seen an atom, uh, it's a very abstract thing, in a sense. I mean, it, before about 120 years ago, people didn't really uh, believe in atoms the way we do today, and. And that, that's a claim that I really haven't gone back to look at the experiment to establish these facts without really um, having sought to uh, reconstruct any of those experiments myself. I, I take it on faith because lots of smart people seem to believe it. There seems to be this whole system of uh, chemistry built up around it that really kind of strikes me as making a lot of sense. And it just seems like the sort of thing I should believe. Um, but you're using at, words at the end of the day. That's that's why I believe it. You're using words though, like, well, you're saying seems like, which to me indicates that you have a perception about that. And if the if the sources that you were reviewing gave you a perception that not many people believe that, 
you'd be less inclined to believe it, right? So, so I think there's definitely validity to the point that that Sally's making that all of this information is filtered, and we have a problem with the propagation of information today that it's through so many different outlets. And the problem is that those outlets filter and make claims about the information that differ from one another. And then you can just pick and choose what to believe. So for example, that coconut oil study that Sally's talking about, you could have read some news sources that said coconut oil is bad for you. Don't eat any coconut oil. And you could have found plenty of others. And I know this because we, we looked at this. You could have found plenty of others that said, actually, this is all overhyped. It's one study. This is what it actually means. Keep eating coconut oil. So I, I, I think the answer is just not as simple as that. You guys, I have a perfect example of this. Love it. Let's do it. Okay. So there is ample scientific evidence to suggest that um, immoderate, in other words, binge consumption of alcohol during pregnancy puts babies at risk for fetal alcohol syndrome, which is obviously a big problem. Right. Um, and so in the United States, mm. and not really in many other Western countries, um, we have embarked on this campaign, or could I say crusade? I think you could uh, say crusade. Yes. Of oh, public don't, health don't education, Of public health education to inform pregnant women that if so much as a sip of an alcoholic beverage passes, passes their lips during pregnancy, or even during a period of time when they might to be able to get pregnant, as the CDC said, then obviously their baby will be born with all kinds of health problems right, and right. birth defects. And right. um, and not just alcohol, know. but so many other things. Like I didn't even oh, know yeah. this, but like runny <laughs> eggs. I mean, this is probably yeah. lunch meats. Not a good topic to, or like you know, oh. certain sushi. types of cheese. Sushi. Yeah, sushi. And it's just yes. like, what? Do you, are we not supposed to eat anything for you know most right. of a year? That is correct. And some of those things, <laughs> some of those things are more thoroughly based in evidence than others, right? So the risk of listeria from. Uh, pasteurized soft cheese is basically zero, right? The issue is if you eat raw milk cheese, the risk of listeria from lunch meat is lower than the risk of listeria from cantaloupe. But no one's telling pregnant women to stay away from fruit. Sorry, this is a total soapbox of mine. But okay, here's my point that I was going to make. So there was a study released a year or two ago um, that every news outlet I saw picked up and trumpeted as so, new study confirms that no amount of alcohol is safe in pregnancy. Wow. So you think from reading that headline that there had been some kind of study done in some systematic fashion to determine that even women who had, uh, you know, very small to moderate alcohol consumption during their pregnancies, which let me remind you is the norm in like France and Australia. Right, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, all of their babies had terrible health problems. So I went and read the study, and what it actually says is that there are significant comorbidities with fetal alcohol syndrome. So if you're drinking enough to give your baby FAS, your baby might also have other serious health problems. Right. Well, we already knew that drinking that much during pregnancy was dangerous right. for the baby. So this study tells us effectively nothing, and yet, mm. literally, they have articles, you know, on the internet and in newspapers quoting medical doctors saying what this study shows us is that no amount of alcohol is safe during pregnancy. And my husband uh, went to medical school 
and worked with a professor there who has done um, review studies based on consumption patterns in other countries because people there are much more honest about their alcohol consumption during pregnancy than American women because we all fear being socially excoriated and or having our babies taken away from us, if we're honest about it. Um, and he has discovered through this research that it does not appear that um, sort of low to moderate alcohol consumption poses significant health risks for the fetus. And he cannot get this research published really? in the United Whoa. States. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. No one will publish it. That's so, so that's just to, we, and we, ha- we talked that, about that. That's a, a point for the conspiracy time. theorists right there. Yeah, <laughs> right. That, so that's, this is right? the trouble because you have these, these examples and then that makes people skeptical of scientific claims altogether. Can I ask a question that might be, maybe it'll be a dense question, but I, this is occurring to me and it's, it's occurred to me in the climate change debate a lot, but I think this is another good example. What, so, so this, this example that you just shared, Muriel suggests that there is a powerful anti maternal alcohol consumption lobby out there that doesn't want any of this information published. I I think, I think social, social trends might be more appropriate word than lobby. Yeah, I agree. I think this relates to the climate change debate as well, because it's not clear to me. So, so everyone who says that there's a vast climate change conspiracy that, I mean, I acknowledge that conspiracies can exist in the world. I'm not an anti-conspiracy theorist per se. So conspiracies are real, but I don't see a motivation for this particular conspiracy. Like why is there in the minds of, of these people, why is there a vast cabal trying to convince the world that global temperatures are rising gradually every year. Like, what, I don't know what, maybe I'm just missing something here, but I really don't understand the motivation for this. They're in the pocket of big ethanol. Right. Yeah. No, clearly. I, like, I, I really don't understand. Right. No, I agree. Because it would make more sense that there are people trying to suppress the information, right? That's the conspiracy. Yes. I, I mean, I would think so, right? Because if, if, if climate changes, if climate change is real, and human activity, primarily burning fossil fuels, is causing that, then really all the money, it seems, you know, the Exxons and the Valeros and the Chevrons of the world would, would I would think, be behind wanting to suppress that information. So if there's a massive conspiracy going on in the science on this, I would think it would be trying to suppress it and convince us all that it's not real. But, but somehow the narrative is that it's the other way around, and I really don't understand that. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess <laughs> I guess you guys are also confused on this. So I, I really don't understand where it's no coming answers. from. But, um, so one thing that we can move on shortly, I just wanted to, to touch uh, on something that Will and Mira, you both mentioned earlier. You, uh, you're talking kind of about epistemic modesty. And Mira, you mentioned this study that said study confirms, right? So it's obviously important to have an, a healthy understanding of the limits of science and what science can and cannot do. And we, we've talked about science as if it is sort of this separate entity uh, apart from subjective knowledge. Uh, but science, I think, really should refer to a process of arriving at greater knowledge. And we, we don't often refer to it that way. We just want to basically say that things that are scientific are not open to debate and things that are not scientific are much more open to debate. And I think this sort of harms harms the uh, conversation here because when we talk about epistemic modesty, it's really hard. So 
by that, I mean, um, and I think you guys mean just sort of uh, a modesty about how you arrive at the conclusions you do, a, a modesty about the knowledge that you think you have. So when we talk about epistemic modesty, it's hard to do that when we've convinced ourselves that science is absolute and what a scientific study says cannot really be refuted and science is capable of proving anything beyond a shadow of a doubt when really we have to acknowledge that it's not. Even if we're very ardent supporters of science, uh, technology, engineering, and math, we have to be acknowledged that there are limitations there with what it can tell us. Well, and any knowledge of history tells you that, right? I mean, the scientific, I think that's the strongest argument for the people who are constantly suspicious of the scientific consensus because there have been pretty major shifts in it throughout, you know, yes. history. I'm not, I'm not an expert in that, but I know, I know a little bit. No, I mean, there are, there are classic examples, right? It used to be accepted that bloodletting would get you better. So, yeah, lots of yeah, changes. Yeah, there's over a time. lot. You can learn a lot about that on sawbones. There's all kinds of crazy stuff in medicine that we used to do. But, um, but I do think you know if if we agree as a as a roundtable that um, it would be good if in these areas where the scientific consensus seems fairly firm for people to accept it and act accordingly. One thing that we can all do is be careful when we talk about what science does and does not say in areas where it's much less clear um, and just try to be really precise with that language when we're making arguments about why people should or should not do X or Y. So, you know, I'm not prepared to go running through the streets uh, with a bullhorn screaming, like, drink as much as you want, your baby will be fine. Um, because I don't know that to be true. What I do know to be true is that there appear to be significant differences in health outcomes between babies whose mothers drink moderately and babies whose mothers binge drink. Right. So what I feel comfortable running through the street screaming is, don't binge drink. But that's not the same as don't let a drop of alcohol cross your lips. And I think if we want people to do, you know, the best or the right thing, you know, framing the shoulds and shouldn'ts in terms of what we actually know rather than, you know, in a, in a simpler way, I think would take us a lot, a part of the way there, at least. Right. Here, here. Okay, so let's, we'll end on, on another science topic, but super cool. Um, so apparently a Mars research crew has been working on, and Zach, you can talk about this more, yeah, but I, they, you know, go ahead. Well, yeah, I don't want to cut you off, but uh, I just, I saw this two days ago, I think, or three days ago, that there was a team at the University of Hawaii that was uh, in a like, simulated Martian habitat for nine months or, or eight months, I think. And it was, it was a basically a psychological and physiological test to see how they would do in isolation with just a small team, nobody else to talk to, et cetera. And they just emerged and I guess they're all okay. They obviously have a lot more testing to go through, but I was just thinking, wow, what a cool thing and what a crazy thing. And Will, I thought of you because we've talked about yeah. this on the podcast before, whether or not you'd be willing to go to Mars and you've said you, you would, but you wouldn't, wouldn't want to leave your family behind. Did you but, know that this was happening, Will? Because if any of us did, I feel like you would know. Yeah, I had no idea. Uh, yeah, I heard about this. Okay, okay. I think it's pretty exciting. It's super exciting, yeah. I mean, I think it would be miserable to be... Eight months of isolation. <laughs> yeah, uh, pent up in a small little Martian <sighs> habitat. I think it was like 1,200 feet of living space, and, and it was, a, I think, a, I don't really, I don't know the size of the team. I got the impression it was like a four- to six-person team. So that's a, that's a 
not a lot of space for not many people. And it, they, I thought it was just Matt. Wait, Matt Damon by himself. Right. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Oh, right. That was the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was essentially the Martian uh, scenario where you're alone, yeah. out of contact with everyone else in your little habitat. And you're there for eight months. Pretty cool. And they, they had a picture of a guy coming out and he just had this huge smile on his face. Like he was like, ah, oh, civilization, I'm back. I made it. So Will, do you know like what the environment was like for them? No, actually, I, I don't know very much about it. I, uh, I, I, I saw that this happened and I've sort of bookmarked it on my computer. I'm going to read about it, but I haven't yet. So I unfortunately don't have very much to tell you about it. Uh, other than that, I think it's pretty cool. Would you have done this, Will? Of course. Well, in an alternate reality (laughs) where I am a single man, I would love to go away for eight months to be on Mars, especially if it meant that I might actually have the opportunity to fly to Mars. Yeah. I think that would be absolutely incredible. It would be absolutely incredible. But as you said, it'd have to be an alternate universe. I would not want to leave the family to do that. Muriel, would you do this? (laughs) No. (laughs) But, um, no, and I'll tell you why, and it's kind of a funny reason. Not, I mean, not just because I love my children and sunshine, although those are both really important reasons. But um, I don't I, – uh, uh, no, it freaks me out. I mean, presumably there's, like, some sort of escape mechanism if something went wrong, but I think I'm just the wrong person for that kind of psychological experiment. Although – um, I did see that they got to grow fresh vegetables. So that's yes. kind of cool. No, so I thought, yeah, two things that I thought were cool about this. One is that they had a biology specialist, just like Matt Damon in the Martian movie. <laughs> this guy's name was Joshua Ehrlich. And yeah, he grew fresh vegetables, um, which is just really cool. And and the also the other thing was that they um, actually, as in The Martian, where there was like a time delay, you know, when Matt Damon would talk and then you have to wait until they could respond, they they made sure that there was a 20-minute delay um, as though they they were in Mars. And, oh, really? Yeah, wow. which is, I mean, it makes sense. Of course, they would have thought about that, but I just thought that was cool. The part that I found amazing about that was that it only takes 20 minutes. Yeah, that's true. You would think it would take longer. Yeah. That's true. Well, I, I, it had never occurred to me at all until I read the article. And then I thought, I guess that's actually pretty fast for how far away uh, my impression of Mars distance from us is. I'm not really up on that, but it seems like it's pretty far. Yeah, yeah and that, that's actually day. when so, – so Mars – the distance between Mars and Earth can vary quite a bit depending on whether they're on the same side of the sun or kind of you know nearing opposite sides of the sun. 20 minutes is, is pretty far, is pretty long, actually. It can take a lot less if Mars and Earth are sort of lined up. Light's really fast, and we can communicate at light speed. But a how? Light, how do we communicate at light speed? Yeah, Re- maybe this is taking us far afield, but I'm very curious. No, that's, that's fine. So light is just one form of electromagnetic radiation, which is a, a fancy word for saying just, uh, you know, there are kinds of light that we don't really see that our eyes aren't designed to pick up. Um, but those sorts of things we use all the time. Radio waves are exactly like light. They're just a the kind of light that we can't see. And so directed radio waves can be used to communicate in space. And they travel at the speed of light because they are light. Um, and the speed of light is really, really incredibly fast. I mean, uh, going at light speed, you could circle the entire world seven times in a second. It's ridiculously fast. Well, that um, sounds like a conspiracy. <laughs> 
It is. It's probably true. I mean, if you um, if you try to do an experiment in your house or something, you know, turn on a lamp with your stopwatch in hand, you probably won't be able to really accurately measure the speed of light. So who's to say? It reminds me of the Truman Show. You know how he's oh, yeah, like yeah, totally. living in a conspiracy. Or chemtrails. Let's talk about chemtrails next. <laughs> Well, I think we should probably wrap up. Um, thanks, guys, for coming on the show again <laughs> to talk about all this. Yeah, sorry about uh, <laughs> sorry about the fail on the first record. That's totally my. I'm bad. always happy to have a chance to talk to y'all. It was fun. Me too. Well, thanks so much for joining us, guys. This was a lot of fun, and we look forward to hosting you on the next roundtable, if not before. I'm by your side